I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name is Shelley Johnson. I'm a HR consultant. M. Hey, Shell. I'm Emily Bowen, and I work for a company called Forsyth's Recruitment and HR. Today's episode, we are answering all your employment law questions, and we have Madeline Teedman with us, an employment lawyer. She specialises in employment law, and she's been working with Australian business lawyers and advisors for over seven years. And we know, like Newcastle Permanent knows, that experience matters, Shell. With over 118 years of it, you can bank with confidence knowing that you're backed by Australia's second largest customer-owned financial institution. That's not bad. Head on over to newcastlepermanent.com.au. Welcome, Madeline or Maddie, as we like to call you. It's so great to have you hanging out with us today on the show. Hi, ladies. Great to be here with you both. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. We put the call out. It was probably a week and a half ago or thereabouts to our Facebook community on the My Millennial Money Facebook group. And I'm just going to say we got hammered with questions. And I think I actually tagged you in that post, Mads, and and you kind of looked at it and went, oh my goodness. So we've done our best to cull those down because there was just so much good content. And as much as we would love to ask you all of the questions, we decided that maybe a four-hour podcast might be a bit much. So should we jump straight in, Maddie? Because we do want to hit you with all these questions and make the most of the time we have with you. And This is really topical at the moment about casual rights. And so this is something that Fair Work have obviously been kind of communicating out, but it can be quite complex uh, if you're not in this world every day. And so one of the questions that I think is really important that we want to answer is, are casuals entitled to go permanent after a certain period of time? And can you kind of unpack that for us? Yeah, absolutely, Shell. Um, So I should start out by saying that, yeah, casual employment is very relevant at the moment. It was probably about two years ago that they put into all the modern awards your um, model clause, which enables um, casual employees to convert to permanent or part-time or full-time, depending on the hours you're doing. Um, And then most recently, I think it was the 27th of March that the Fair Work Act has actually now changed to um, implement that ability for casual employees to convert to permanency um, in the NES. So, Essentially, most employees will be entitled to convert from casual employment to permanent employment. Of course, there are a few caveats to that. And so when you say um, caveats to that, is that to do with like one of the questions I see in employment is what is like a reasonably predictable week 
for a casual? Like, is it if you have the same hours each week that you can convert to a permanent or how how does that work? Yeah. So I should say, um, so if you are not an irregular employee or an irregular casual, then you are able to convert. So you need to have that regularity. um, And what that might look like is you're working every day of the week. It might look like that you're working a few days of the week, but it is a regular nature. It's not going to be that you're performing the same hours every single week. You could be doing different hours every single week and still be considered regular and systematic. So my understanding, I know, as you say, there was that change announced on the 27th of March, where from what I understand, it's now flipped that after 12 months, rather than the casual employee requesting or being required to request conversion to permanent, it's actually the onus is on the employer to offer that. Is that right? Yeah. And that kind of existed before that as well in the awards. The employer actually had an obligation to inform the casual employee that they had the right to elect. But yeah, that's right. And so what can someone do if they hit the 12 month mark, they're up to speed on the national employment standards, which is now where this casual conversion clause sits and they don't hear from their employer. Should they be sort of putting their hand up and saying, hey, remember me? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I should say also, it's not just 12 months because if you are an award covered employee, there are awards that um, entitle you to conversion after six months. Okay. So, Uh, I suppose it's important that you know what instrument you're covered by. So if you're under an enterprise agreement, you might have different entitlements. Um, If you are under a modern award, you might actually get that right before another employee. Um, You might be able to do it after six months. But then if you are just award free and just entitled to this under the national employment standards, then yeah, you're looking at the 12 months. And this is the thing about employment law. Uh, I feel like, and it's probably going to sort of go through this whole conversation today, There's always these, well, we've used the word caveats, but it's like, it depends. It depends. You need to look at your own award. Have you got, you know, an enterprise agreement? Like there's just so many different little rabbit holes that you can go down. And it's, that's probably, you know, an early word of warning to people that we'll sort of talk as much as we can to the different questions that have been asked, like this one from Jamie um, and others. But I think we probably should put that disclaimer out there early. Yeah, that's right, Em. And I probably should have said that myself at the outset that almost every answer, and I hate to disappoint you at all at the start of the episode, but almost every answer will have, it depends um, on your contract, your the relevant instrument covering your employee, employment and whatnot. And I think that's good because it is a complex area. Like you've been doing this for seven years. I'm sure you've encountered so many complex employment law matters that you've had to navigate. And so it is good to be able to get to some of these questions that our community have asked so that we can start to shine some light on. Here's some of the answers, but it is, uh, there's so many variables when it comes to employment law in Australia. I, uh, if you don't mind, guys, wouldn't mind just staying on this casual rights piece for a little bit longer and and giving it a bit of airtime because there was a follow-up question asked from Jamie, but also Natalie's asked a good one as well. So um, just to double check, what happens if you go to your employer or you're having that conversation with your employer in regards to permanent transition and they actually refuse? What can an employee do in, or what should an employee know about that situation? Yeah, so I suppose um, we should say, they are entitled to refuse in some circumstances. So if it's reasonable for them to refuse, for example, uh, if you have been working regularly as a casual employee for the last 11 months or going on 12 months and 
your employer knows that they're about to lose one of their contracts and they won't actually need you, it might not be reasonable to move you onto permanency. So that might be a, a reasonable right for them to refuse. Um, and so they, they do have the ability to refuse. What you should be doing if they do refuse is asking them why they are refusing, asking them to put in writing while they're refusing um, and probably raising with them at that point the entitlement itself. So whether it exists under your enterprise agreement, your award or the NES, just directing them to that piece of legislation um, and saying, look, did you actually know about this? I am entitled to do it. And if they then still refuse, what you might be looking to do is go and have a chat to an employment lawyer um, if you do want to take that next step or potentially contacting the Fair Work Ombudsman. That point you made then, Maddie, about maybe they don't know about the clause and some of them will know and, and I know when you're consulting with businesses and they don't often know the whole landscape is so um, full on. So they don't maybe know all these different bits and pieces. In your role in advising employers, how many employers know about this stuff? Oh, look, a lot of them are good and they do know and they do keep up to date. They get sent out updates, but there are a lot that don't. So I would not be surprised if an employer is not aware of the changes or particularly that they came in, for example, in relation to the NES so recently, like a week or two ago. And I think that's a good call out because it could be if you're having this conversation at your workplace and you're wanting to move to permanent, just be mindful. It may be that your employer or your manager just isn't aware. And so how you approach that conversation, um, just assume and give them the benefit of the doubt because that will go better for you when you're talking about this stuff. Yeah, assume good intent. I think that's so important. Whereas if you kind of go in all guns blazing going, why didn't you you know, send me a, an email or a letter or whatever is appropriate about this? And then you're assuming that, you know, they're doing the wrong thing. I think it can just go pear-shaped. That's right. And no good reason. And you're just putting yourself in their headspace for a second. That tends to go better for you as the employee when you do that. Yeah, particularly with how many changes we have seen in employment law in probably the last three or so years, it's not surprising if they don't know, to be honest. Yeah, it's kind of fair, but, you know, then it's how they deal with it afterwards. Hey, Maddie, Natalie asked, um, I guess just if you were to flip the thinking a little bit, what if this casual conversion offer is out there, but you would actually prefer to stay on the casual rate because it's a higher, um, it's a higher hourly rate. So I guess the cash that's going to hit your bank account is going to be higher than if you transition. Yeah, and that's not uncommon. Um, we have a lot of employers reaching out saying, well, I've offered conversion and the employee doesn't want to change. And so what I say to that is most of the time it will be fine. They will most likely say all good and they will just make a note of the fact that they either offered you conversion or it that time passed and you refused to convert. The risk I would say with it is that with all of the litigation we've seen around casual employment and those double dipping cases where employees have been engaged as casual for a really long time and are now coming back and claiming annual leave, there is a motivation on the part of an employer to move its casual employees over to permanency if they can. And so what you might see, um, and I I don't see this often, so I don't know that it would happen to you, but what you might see if you refuse to change over is that your employer might make the casual position redundant and move that to a permanent role. What I think would happen if that were you is that you would probably move to the permanent role. Sure. Um, <laughs> and you kind of, yeah, it's funny to think about you almost end up back where you started in a way. 
Uh, we've mentioned the NES a few times, so I was hoping you actually wouldn't mind. We might have a few people that aren't across what their national employment standards are. What's sort of the one sentence uh, description or um, definition yeah, of Yeah, can NES? you quickly put it into one sentence? Yeah, <laughs> yeah sorry. I probably... Yeah, www.fairwork.com.au <laughs> yeah, forward it. slash NES. <laughs> I mean, the way that I describe it is just basically a set of minimum entitlements for employees. So you would know what they are for the most part. They're things like annual leave, personal leave, um, and now casual conversion amongst other things, but they are your minimum entitlements. And so that's like the baseline across any industry, any role. And then we have these awards that sit on on top of that. Can you just Give me a little bit of it for someone who has no uh, understanding of, of how that works. Yeah, absolutely. So the modern awards then do sit on top of that, you're right, and they apply to a specific industry or a specific occupation. Um, and the reason that they exist is they create specific entitlements for that industry or that type of employee that isn't obviously relevant to all of Australia's employees. And as Em mentioned, you can just just Google, find my award and, and there's so much resource on there that keeps it simple for you. Yeah, I can't promise the URL I just made up was correct, but, but it will probably Google still it. get you there if you chuck it in Google. <laughs> it might be a nice time to actually talk a bit more on awards um, yeah, as well. Yeah, perfect. All right, so we had a question from Leanne about award rates. So her in her job, she's they haven't been covered under an award, and so as of July one, their roles will fall under an award. And her and many of her colleagues are already uh, paid about fifty percent above the award rate. And one of the concerns she has is that the rate of their pay will drop as a result of them moving and transitioning onto an award. Can you kind of unpack that for us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I think the short answer is no, uh, your um, pay rate won't just drop upon you becoming covered by this award or it shouldn't. Um, Your employer can't just unilaterally change your employment contract. So you will have a written employment contract or a verbal employment contract that you've obviously been working under for potentially many years, providing whatever um, services it is that you provide you know, as a dental hygienist, for example, um, and you've been receiving a pay rate for that, your employer can't unilaterally turn around and say, oh, just because you're covered by this award now, you're going to get less pay. And so touching on that, I know back when COVID hit, people did take pay cuts from their employment because they opted to. So what are the scenarios? Because my understanding has always been you don't, you, you can't give, you can't reduce someone's pay if they're doing the same role they were doing, say, yesterday. What are the scenarios where there's um, maybe exceptions around that? Yeah, I think uh, the difficulty with the COVID situation is that um, a lot of people did unilaterally change their employees' pay and they probably shouldn't have. Uh, so you still can't unilaterally, even with COVID, change somebody's pay. And Maddie, do you, can I just, so when you're saying unilaterally, can you unpack that for our listeners as well, what you mean by that? So you can't from one way. So the employer on their own can't change your pay rate. Um, and so what I should say is that an employee can agree to it, of course, and I think that's what happened um, and employees felt like they needed to agree to a pay cut a- amongst the COVID crisis. But yeah, so what what your employer could do that might be an exception that comes to mind in this scenario with the change in award is offer you a new employment contract with a lesser rate of pay, but you're under no obligation to accept that contract. So what you're saying is an employer can't come to you and, and just say, hey, Em, here's your pay cut. This is what's happening tomorrow. There has to be some kind of consultation around it and agreement from both parties. That's right. 
That's right. They can't force a new pay rate or employment contract on you. They would be breaching the employment contract they have with you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Sitting at the other end of, still on, I guess, this topic of contracts, but at the other end of the employment, we had quite a number of questions around restraint clauses. So typically in my experience, we find that people uh, become aware that there's a restraint clause in their contract when they go to leave an employer. Sometimes it can be, you know, another opportunity, a sort of side hustle or something might come up while you're employed. But I think more often than not, it's at that point of exit. So I guess I'm keen to try to not be the lawyer and let you do that, Mads. But we had Marco, Felicia, Keishi, they were all asking, you know, in essence, what is the go with non-competes? What is the go with restraint clauses? Um, you know, how is this going to impact my future progression or my future career opportunities? Can you just talk a little bit about that world of restraint clauses and we might sort of then unpack with a few other questions from there? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think pr- it's probably easiest if at the outset I explain what they are if you don't already know. Your employer might give you an employment contract when you start a new job that has post-employment Uh, restraints in it. What that can include is um, a non-compete clause saying that you can't go and work for a competitor after you finish employment. Um, It might include a non-solicit clause. That means that you can't solicit their clients or their employees. So other employees, when you leave, you can't go and steal everyone away. It might include a non-dealing clause saying that you can't deal with other um, parties. So for example, you'd be thinking about manufacturers, um, you know, suppliers, those types of parties that you've dealt with in your employment. So at the outset, I should say you are, uh, the employer is entitled to include clauses like that in an employment contract. They can. Um, the question becomes whether those clauses are enforceable. It's a good point because Felicia has actually said that she's finding that some that she's seen are quite vague and she can find them quite difficult to understand. So it's then like, well, if I've resigned from my job, how enforceable are they? And maybe, Mads, you might have a story about where you've seen them be either enforced or be challenged and and what it looks like. I guess I'm just putting myself in these shoes. Even Marco, for example, he's working for an industry where there's only two or three big competitor companies. It's like, where does it leave someone when they go to try and leave and they're just left thinking, what do I actually do with this clause that I agreed to three, four, five years ago? Yeah, that's right. So I I explained that there were a number of different clauses that can be included from a post-employment restraint perspective. Your non-compete clause is probably your trickiest um, and the hardest to enforce. But what a court will look at to determine whether the clause is enforceable um, is whether it's reasonably necessary to protect the legitimate business interests of your employer. So your non-compete clauses like your raise M are obviously tricky to enforce because if you do have a situation like Marco's where you can only really go and work for two or three other companies in your industry, it may be that the court doesn't find that that's enforceable because, um, for example, you would be without work if you if you didn't move on to that new employer yeah, and there's so much, I, there's a lot of concern around restraint clauses about how that impacts my career. Like it just narrows the scope of opportunity right down. And especially Marco is working in quite a niche industry. He mentioned, I think, I think a lot of people feel that way. And also like wh- how, just, this is me curious, probably not, maybe not for our listeners, maybe so. How does someone actually go about enforcing it? Now, is that outside, is that through 
what what channel tribunal does that go through? Um, so we work in New South Wales in Australia. You would do it through the Supreme Court of New South Wales. What it would look like typically if your employer had to enforce it is that they would write to you um, and remind you of your obligations under your employment contract. But if they were to file in the Supreme Court of New South Wales, it will be a very costly experience for both parties involved. And, and so in your experience, how likely are employers to do that? I think it will depend on the employee. So um, the work you're doing, how valuable you are to the business and whether there's actually any damage done by you doing what you're doing. So typically I would hope that most employers seek legal advice about that. Um, And what we tell them, of course, is that you need to be able to show that there's been some loss. So if you've got uh, an employee who has been working in client services or sales and they have all these really important clients that they've been dealing with uh, and then they leave and they try to take the clients and they take half of your team, your sales team as well, obviously that's going to significantly impact the business. Um, And maybe they will go after you and, and make a claim in the Supreme Court because if they've lost significant contracts because of that, they, they absolutely have the right to if you're in breach of one of your restraints. So I suppose don't assume that it won't be enforceable, but I suppose I should also mention for your other roles, like if you have uh, a receptionist um, or an administrative role that isn't dealing with the clients on a day-to-day basis and isn't going, them leaving is not going to result in you losing money per se, then I'd say the risk of them bringing a claim is low. And if we think back, Em, to one of our previous episodes about uh, your exit strategy, this reminds me of that, like, just be a good human when you exit, don't take half the clients or whatever, and you won't have this problem, right? That's right. I I think uh, I I wanted to say as well that I suppose you you need to think about these things going in and going out. So when you're going in, read your contract and actually acknowledge the fact, for example, in Marco's situation, if you've got only two to three um, competitors in this field, raise with your employer at the time that maybe a non-compete isn't reasonable for you given your industry and have that conversation at the outset. Maybe it won't result in anything, but it's worth doing. That's so good because you actually do have that uh, power and, and ability to, to negotiate, to discuss at the beginning, but it becomes very hard to do during and at the latter stages of your employment. It's a good, I was actually going to ask you guys if either of you uh, have ever seen anybody at that back end at the point of exit actually sit down with their employer and say, I'm resigning and also can we waive this clause? probably use a few more words than I just did to put a business case forward. But have you guys ever seen that? I'm I'm thinking maybe I got the answer in that it's easier to do up front than it is when you've Not necessarily. You absolutely can do it when you're resigning. And um, I mean, in my industry, especially people do it all the time. Uh, But we also see people and other employers have this happen all the time. And I think it's important to have that conversation because what you could have a conversation about is, look, you've got a non-compete clause in my contract. That's going to be really hard for you to enforce. And it also means I won't be able to work. So would you consider waiving my non-compete clause? And I will agree and sign something to say that I intend to comply with the remainder of my restraints. So I won't solicit your clients. I won't solicit the employees. I won't deal with your suppliers, your manufacturers, everything else. 
And that can be a really good way to exit a business if you're just honest and upfront. I love that so much, that approach of actually being upfront because to your question, Em, I had, I was consulting with a client the, uh, not that long ago where they had an employee exit and go to a competitor and they had a non-compete and that person was kind of in violation of that, I guess. And it's such a bad experience for the employer like it's just like they're not necessarily going to enforce it because A, they can't be bothered to go to the Supreme Court and B, it costs too much. But I just think if you want to have a good relationship with your employer on exit, if you want a good reference, have that type of conversation that you just described, Maddie, instead of just kind of assuming, oh, they won't like, enforce it, so I'll just go with it. Or yeah, just risking it and then it can become a little bit soured. That's I th- right. I think in any, we talk about how grey and how it depends in inverted commas this employment law space can be. I feel like the best thing you can do in any circumstance is try and put the shoes on of the other party and just go, okay, what is the organisation going to be prioritising here? What are they trying to achieve? What sort of security are they looking for? And then hope that they're doing the same on behalf of employers, uh, employees rather in designing something like a contract. Liam actually asked, um, it's pretty cool. So Liam's um, just getting to the stage of putting on staff in his own business, which is awesome. Um, And so he was actually interested to hear um, from an employer point of view what to look for or maybe what to avoid when putting on his first employee. You know, what are the business owner's rights? Mads, if you're sort of, I guess, now advising an employer, it might be that we talk more about restraint clauses, um, but is there anything else that you would say an employer should be considering in regards to the beginning and end of a employment relationship? Yeah, I think to Liam's question, if you're starting out a new business, um, you absolutely at the outset should have your employment contracts ready to go um, and what that might look like is going and finding out what award covers your employees, if any. Um, If there's a couple of awards that cover your employees, for example, finding out that information ahead of time and having those documents in place. And I suppose you've got your employment contracts, but then also your policies and things like that. Having all of that ready to go when you're starting up is so valuable. If we continue on contracts, because this is one of my fave questions, because we M knows. I know, like Shell's is HR nerding out right now. <laughs> this is just so like, good. Go, go. I, uh, in, there's, there's this one line in the contract that can really tick people off and we've had heaps of questions about it and I know we probably have a different view to you and, and um, Fonte has asked the question we always get asked, what does reasonable overtime mean? How? Yeah, because these employers, Liam, <laughs> uh, no, we're not picking on Liam, but employers have a tendency to put a couple of sentences in contracts like reasonable overtime or what's the other one about duties? It's like and other related duties. Yeah, other duties as required. That's right. Yes, I knew it was something like that. So what does this mean and can you quantify it? Please solve the big problem <laughs> of well, this reasonable overtime for us. Well, I should say at the outset that um, – It's not just your employer that's imposing this word in your contract about that. It is also in the Fair Work Act. You are entitled as a full-time employee to work 38 hours and reasonable additional hours. So I suppose it's very tricky to determine. It will depend on the employee's role, the employee's uh, salary, the employee's industry. Uh, But the Fair Work Act actually does deal with it itself um, and actually says what will be taken into account in determining whether overtime is reasonable. So it's things like uh, whether the employees are 
health and safety is at risk from the additional hours. So maybe if you're working 100 hours a week, you're fatigued and that's not safe. Uh, the employee's personal circumstances, do they have family and caring responsibilities? Any notice of the employer? Did they tell you a week before that you'd need to do this overtime or did they tell you the day before or the hour before that you needed to stay back tonight? Um, perhaps that's not reasonable. I'm afraid that my answer is it really depends though. Um, and there are a number of other elements that will be taken into account um, and they are in the Fair Work Act. But it's tricky because it really will depend on your role. Um, if you are working I suppose being paid a couple of hundred thousand dollars, uh, maybe it is reasonable that you're working significant overtime because you're being compensated to do so. So David, for example, if we were to just um, take this a step further and be quite specific, Maddie, David was on a 38-hour contract but would only get overtime after the first 10 hours each day. This, is, this feels like I'm reading out a maths problem. Um, so essentially he's saying that he worked more than 10-hour days for a six-month period every year for three years, which on his calculations worked out to be about 1,000 hours of overtime that he never got paid for. Um, and I'm just reading that from our Facebook group. What would be your response to that as a case study? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, David. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I would need to see David's employment contract. How much money is David being paid? Like I just said with the salary, if you're in a really good wicket, um, working a couple of hours extra each day might be fine. Of course, if you're being paid in accordance with the award or in accordance with minimum wage, not fine, probably not fine. And that's a really good call out. If you are classified, if you can see your award classification, you go and check on Fair Work what that pay rate is and you're pretty close to that. Generally, that reasonable overtime is is very small, if anything. That's but right. if you're on a salary, and, and this is one of the things, it's give and take. Like I just think, I, I don't know what you would, I'm curious, do you have a vibe of what you would classify as a good wicket? <laughs> Like, is there a, a figure in your mind that you're like, if you're paid over X, uh, I and I'm putting you on the spot, and you, it, jump you in if you've got a vibe. Awfully horrible view. <laughs> yes. um, no, I would uh, suppose the reality is that if you're an award covered employee and you're being paid the award rate, um, that can vary anywhere from forty dollars $45,000 to $60,000, I would say, around that mark. I suppose if you're leaning towards the greater end of those numbers and you're entering your 70s, your 80s and your 90s, you're, you're being paid most likely well above what you're actually entitled to. Yeah, and, and it's good to understand that and know that from the outset and go, okay, well, be careful of how you – and I know I often speak from the employer lens, but it's because I've sat on the other side of the table in meetings with employees about this and it can really tick me off – Let's just be candid. Yeah, I was going to say that was such a polite way of saying. Oh, I'm on parental leave and now I just want to be really honest with you all because I'm away from work. I'm like, so I don't like sitting on the other side of that table and having an employee come to me with a spreadsheet of hours saying, I'm owed these hours. And I think, well, you're paid 90K. Suck it up. I Like, yeah. like that's just have the conversation with your employer and, and have that discussion of going, hey, I'm working – if you're working 60-hour weeks and you're exhausted and tired, you need to talk to your boss about that. Like, absolutely. 
But I don't like when people come to it from this real strong entitlements lens where it gets down to minute and hour for hour kind of dialogue. Yeah, because most of the time, this is me probably about to just jump on that soapbox with you, Shell. Most of the time, I don't think it would be well received if that conversation was sitting the other way around. And it was about tea breaks and, as I say, you know, lunches that go for an extra 20 minutes or ducking to the doctor's appointment because they're only ever open at the time that we're all at work. That's right. Give and take, I think, is a nice way to put it. And maybe as a strategy, would there be room, and you should both jump into this question, but would there be room perhaps early on when you're actually, you've got that offer of employment, you're agreeing on a salary, you're getting to know the culture, you're about to sign a contract to say, look, what do you find? I'm mindful that I'm on a good wicket. Um, I'm mindful that I'm coming into a role that's a professional role, a technical role, a senior role, whatever it might be. I'm not being paid on an award rate. What do you find in your business is the culture around overtime? I think that's absolutely a conversation you should be having and you'd be crazy not to have it. I think if you're starting a new job, you should ask what the expectation around hours is. You should take one of the other employees out if you can for coffee and ask them what, what the overtime expectations are. Um, And I suppose I should also say that one of the things they take into account when they do determine the reasonable overtime under the Fair Work Act is your indication as an employee that you won't be able to work overtime or you will refuse to work overtime. So for example, if you've gone into a job and said that you absolutely cannot do overtime on Wednesdays and Fridays because you have to take your daughter to soccer training, for example, that will be taken into account and it probably won't be found to be reasonable overtime if they then expect you to work back ah, that day. I've just learned something. I didn't know about that. There you go. Cool. You can stay. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm learning heaps. I'm learning heaps. So we're just going to take a break. We've already covered so much good stuff, but when we come back, um, there's much more meaty topics like bullying and harassment and oh, what else are we going to talk about? I reckon we'll talk about mental health as well. So back soon. Money, property, careers, health, small business. We love learning how to do all of these well so we can live our best life. That's why we've made podcasts focus on a variety of topics. Check out My Millennial Money, My Millennial Money Express, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, Gen Z Money, and You To Me, You To You, You To Us, which is just about sexual and reproductive health. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. 
All right. Shall we shift gears? Where do we want to go next in this conversation? Oh, I've let you pick a topic if you like, Shell. I mean, you just mentioned mat leave. We've got all sorts of things in here about flexibility Ooh, and yes. mat leave. And um, I do like to look at those topics. Yes. Let's, let's look at flexibility. We'll start with mat leave because we've just mentioned it. So, and this, ha- this does happen regularly. What so, does? What happens? Sorry, I should. Yeah, you're like, what the heck are you talking about? So I can almost read your mind. We've almost been you hanging can. out long enough. You can. So um, Adeline has asked, on maternity leave, can a company change an employee's role when they come back from their leave? And uh, from a HR perspective, we see this happen regularly because over the 12 months or six months, stuff in the business changes. But what's the legal perspective on that, Maddie? Um, my favourite answer to date, it depends. With a change in role, I suppose I can look at that from two ways. Is it a change in your position description? So is there a change in duties? Um, and if it's a change in duties, most likely uh, your employer will be able to change your duties. And that's probably because the business has changed or um, they've implemented new processes since you've been gone. And most likely your employment employment contract will have a clause that enables them to do that. It might not, in which case you might be able to push back. Um, when we come to a change in role, to me that says the actual role itself and if you've gone on maternity leave and you come back and you've just been moved to an entirely different role, I'd say their ability to do that is uh, far less. But I suppose the question is, for example, was there some sort of redundancy scenario, some sort of restructure? Were you entitled to be consulted in relation to that? Were you consulted in relation to that? Um, And so I suppose we have to take those things into account when we determine whether they can change your role. But at the outset, your role itself, no, I would say they can't just move you um, unilaterally again. (laughs) Uh, But they can probably change your duties with the business changing. And so let's talk about then consultation. So as an employee, what can I expect if I my role's been changed? Because there was another person who asked about can my employer change? I think Jacqueline asked, can can my employer change the PD over time? What what should someone expect around that consultation? I think obviously you can expect to have a discussion with your employer about it, uh, but the reality is that if your employment contract has a clause that says that duties may be changed from time to time, I suppose there's no absolute entitlement to consultation. Uh, There might be certain entitlements to consultation under your modern award if you are covered by one, uh, but with the duties... Typically, I suppose you just expect that your employer, if they are changing your position description, is going to have a conversation with you about it. And if you, I don't know, a new position description lands on your desk then and you haven't been spoken to about it, I would be encouraging you to go and have a conversation about it with them yourself. I have in my mind, this is where I probably go, I'm the recruiter at the table and not the HR professional or the um, employment lawyer. I had in my mind that there was something around when you come back, your role needs to be equivalent. So the same hours, same pay. Yeah. Mm. Um, So it could be a a different position, but I might not be choosing my words properly here, but it could be a different position as long as those things remained sort of equal or equivalent. What's your, can you educate me on that? Because uh, obviously I don't know anything. (laughs) I think that's probably right. Um, I suppose looking at it from the two parts again. So if you're saying if it's a different position. 
Well, maybe that's the. Shall I you think jump if we in? if we look at in redundancy scenarios, often what we're looking at for from redeployment is it does need to look relatively equivalent in terms of status pay, those kinds of things and to I guess be a being valid capable of doing it. Too. That's right, okay. having the skill set, and yes. so that'd be what I'm looking at. I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, so obviously there's a different angle, but. I uh, have seen instances though where something that's offered as as redeployment where it is equivalent then the employee isn't entitled to redundancy because there's a there's a genuine redeployment offer if it's of a lower scope let's say you're on a manager role and we're giving you a specialist job that's of lower lower pay they then access, can access redundancy if they're like, well, that status and pay is different. Mm. That's my understanding that's though, right. Maddie. That's my understanding as okay, well. Okay, cool. And so this sounds page. like, awesome, I'm glad you guys deciphered my poorly worded question. Um, so this sounds like that could happen when you're on maternity leave or when you're not on maternity leave, that sort of redeployment versus redundancy situation. It is. And I suppose it's something that, yeah, might happen while you're on maternity leave, but you'd be in the same situation if you were in the business probably yep. anyway. But I suppose it could probably just feel a bit more disconnected. Yeah, and it is sensitive. So it reminds me of, of let, let's have those keeping in touch days. When you're on parental leave, make sure you're engaging because you don't want this stuff to kind of blindside you. And it does happen um, pretty regularly. So keep in touch. That makes sense. And ke- let's let's just jump. Oh, I've got another question on flexibility. This really awesome. interest is another curious one. So, um, Madeleine has asked on uh, the Facebook community, working from home. If your job can be done remotely, it has been done. So I think that might be a COVID thing, perhaps. Yeah. So let's say for the last year they've been working remotely, and now their employer says, "Come back to the office five days a week." Madeleine, do you have rights to ask to continue to work from home? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, <laughs> I love that you've just like, what's the synonym for it depends? I know, I can't say it depends again. <laughs> we'll um, call this episode It Depends, a Q&A with an employer lawyer. Yeah, that's good. So there are there are rights to request flexible working arrangements under the NES or the National Employment Standards, what we touched on earlier. Uh, the rights that they exist in relation to certain groups of people. So it might be um, if you've got caring responsibilities, um, if you have a disability, if you're over a certain age, there's a a list of those types of people. If you are just a regular person who has worked from home in COVID and then you are being asked to go back to the office and you want to work from home, no, you don't necessarily have the right to be there but you can absolutely ask to be there and what that might look like is um, some sort of trial period where you say look I've been working from home through COVID can we give it another three months and if it's not working I'll come back to the office but if it is why why can't I work from home? Yeah that's interesting because I had it I maybe just operating off an assumption that well if you've proven over the last year that you can work from home effectively your employer should enable you to continue but it's good to know from your angle that that legally there's no an employee doesn't have any rights around that yeah that's right and I think a lot of people are getting a bit of a shock about that but the reality is that we have moved away from a an office environment but there's no reason why we shouldn't also move back to the office I suppose hey uh, I think we have time for probably two more questions. Um, So look, there's so many topics we haven't covered, which always makes me think um, perhaps next season we need to do this again. We've got questions here around super, workers' comp, unfair dismissal, 
bullying, harassment, it just, the list goes on and on. It's just such an awesome, interesting space um, that really does affect us all. I would really like to touch on the bullying and harassment space. So maybe Maddie, if I can ask you a question there and Shell, I reckon you can pick, um, you know, our final question. Oh, um, pressure's that. on. Yeah. Okay. So um, you've got thinking time. There's like thinking Thank music you. happening. Yeah. Um, but Maddie, uh, Chloe has asked us, so again, in the Facebook group, Chloe's asked, bullying and harassment complaint fallout. What can my friend do? I always love those ones that are asking for a friend. What can my friend do if she is not being considered for promotions within the company based off negative references from managers she's previously made bullying and harassment complaints about? I needed to take a breath in that. Sorry. <laughs> so There's a lot to unpack. It is. So this is huge. So it sounds like Chloe's friend has made some complaints about managers previously um, of a bullying and harassment nature and now feels as though she's not being considered for promotions within the company. And look, we don't know from this whether or not the employer has said, look, it's for this reason or we've got negative feedback from over here. Um, So feel free to make any assumptions you like, Maddie. But what would you be saying to Chloe in this sort of scenario? This is a very tricky one and I think these types of issues come up more often than we would all like. I suppose at the outset I want to say the employment relationship, the employer-employee relationship, it's not a democracy. So this is kind of leaning towards the employer perspective. If you aren't being considered for a promotion, there very well may be other reasons why you are not being considered. Um, Obviously, if you have made bullying and harassment complaints um, about certain managers and you're now not being promoted, that's frustrating. But there's no strict entitlement to be promoted, unfortunately. And that's where I come back to the democracy type of thing. Um, You essentially work for the employer and there is a power imbalance in a sense. You don't just get to demand that you have a promotion. So it's a tricky one and it, and it, sucks uh, for Chloe's friend, absolutely. Um, but I don't know. It's it's tricky because you don't have you don't have an entitlement to a promotion per se. And I think for Chloe's friend, it'd be working out. I'd like some specific feedback about why it is that I'm not getting it. Because yes, it could be to do with like that you're being vilified for making a complaint, or it could be that you don't have the skills. So get the specific feedback to then work out. If the feedback that you get about not getting a promotion is not valid, then you go, well, I don't have a career path here, so I need to opt out. Yeah, and that really sucks. And this is such a sensitive space. But, you know, the value you've just added in your answer, Maddie, is there's nowhere for this person to fall back on from a legal point of view in relation to a promotion. So... And just on... mm. Can they go... uh, Because way back when... I recall, I remember when Fairway introduced the the avenue to make bullying claim, like claims of bullying. What does that space look like? Because I haven't thought, I haven't done had anything to do with that in ages. The bullying space is my least favourite jurisdiction. Okay. Um, I think that it is, for want of a better word, pointless. Right. Um, I think you can make a bullying application to the Fair Work Commission. Absolutely, um, it's pretty. St- high standards in terms of what you need to show has occurred, repeated unreasonable conduct. And if you're getting to that point where you're taking your employer to the Fair Work Commission for bullying, and of of course there are going to be situations where it is relevant, but for the most part I find that 
there are people who make bullying complaints and it just ends in a negative relationship between everybody involved because you've essentially called out a particular person at work in those types of applications. You have to name someone who has been bullying you. You have also called out your employer because they are named in the uh, application as well. You all head on down for a conference with a commission member. It's not really a fun experience. Everybody has to put on formal responses to what has been alleged in the application. A lot of the time, in my experience, the applications are people being unhappy with their performance management. So I suppose it, it's it's not a fun jurisdiction to be in and, and you actually don't really often get very much out of it because it's not like an unfair dismissal claim or a general protections claim where it might be that you get some sort of compensation. All the Fair Work Commission can do is make an order to stop bullying. In reality, what that means is if you do get down that that far down the path, which most people do not, um, you may have an order in place from the employer that says uh, the person who was bullying you can't work in the same area as you anymore. Um, but that would be pretty, I suppose, hard for them to impose in smaller businesses. It's very difficult and it doesn't even often get to that that stage. So in hearing you say that, it's probably good going back to your point, M trying to navigate it in your in, with your employer, maybe with a different manager, HR person, someone else in the business to help you navigate, say, the grievance or the, or the case of bullying, working out, get feedback about your performance, get feedback about why you're not successful in that promotion and then use that to dis- determine, is this a place I can stay and have a career trajectory or do I need to opt out because I'm being hamstrung by this manager who's got a vendetta against me? I think that's really, really important is you should look at your employment relationship like a personal relationship in a sense. Personal relationships break down. We go through breakups because we're not getting on with the person we love or a friend. Um, And I think there comes a time in many employment relationships where you feel as though you've been bullied, absolutely, and maybe you have here and there, but it's really tricky to prove once you start to get into that space. Um, And and of course, there are exceptions to what I'm saying if you are really being bullied and it's you can show that, absolutely advocate on your own behalf and get get pursue that. But if you feel as though you're, cur- you're constantly battling with your employer, probably your employment relationship has come to an end and it's time to move on. Complex stuff, hey? It totally is. And it's just like a bit heartbreaking to hear. But at the end of the day, we just we don't want there to be any um, reason for a bullying and harassment claim or to be feeling like you're in this position. But I just so appreciate your honesty and I guess um, upfrontness in answering that question to go, yeah, look, there is an avenue for an application through Fair Work, um, through the Commission. But do you know what? At a human level, like putting the law to the side for one second, it's like at a human level, is it actually worth it or is it just going to be soul-destroying for you and, and maybe others as well and what's the most pragmatic thing to do? Yeah, and I think uh, thinking about your own mental health like in that and I guess that comes to our final question because there are um, were a couple of questions around mental health in the workplace and this is one of the most complex areas uh, I would imagine legally when it comes to employment law as well. So let's talk about what – Just we're just going to focus on one question because we could do a whole episode on this – what is an employee's rights when it comes to taking time off for their mental health? 
And does that differ if they're casual versus if they're permanent? Good choice, Shell. And this is from Bethany. I suppose what are their rights with needing to take time off their mental health? It's in a sense the same as your rights to take time off for an illness or an injury, um, a physical illness or an injury, I should say. So yes, of course, your rights differ between permanent and casual in the sense that if you're permanent, you'll have personal leave that you can exhaust. Um, If you're casual, you don't. Both, both types of employees, though, do have the right to be absent from work um, for up to three months before an employer can terminate them for not being able to perform the inherent requirements of their role. So I think we could have a broader discussion about mental health um, and, and employees' rights, but at the base of it, yes, if you have personal leave, you can exhaust that if you're not mentally well, if you don't have personal leave, then you are entitled to be absent from work for a period of time due to illness. I wonder if one of the, their concerns for people around this is that sense of discrimination, I guess, that once you say, look, I'm, I'm feeling pretty anxious, I think I need to have a mental health day or whatever that looks like, uh, their employer might start to have some red flags. Do, have you seen that in your experience? Not too much. I think for the most part, the employers that I deal with are pretty accommodating and and treat it the same as you would a physical illness or um, injury. In my experience, I've had one or two employers that have been concerned with that type of thing. But for the most part, and for the most part is a lot, like a hundred people who deal with these types of things, they're not worried unless, of course, they find out that you're taking advantage of it or, you know, it does get to a point where, like I said, you can't perform the inherent requirements of your role. So if you are so um, unwell that you can't do your job, then, of course, it is reasonable for the employer to find somebody else. I have a feeling this might depend on the employer and the employer's policies, which could vary from organisation to organisation. But Maddie, what's the rule or what's the requirement? If I'm calling in sick, do I need to tell my employer what's wrong with me? Like, do I need to actually say it's a mental health illness or I've got gastro or I've, you know, it's a bit gross. I don't know why I picked that, but (laughs) you know, I've broken my leg and I actually can't walk. Like how much detail do I need to give? You do need to give detail if you're being asked to provide details. So if you are just having a day off um, and you say, look, I'm not coming in, I need a personal, need to use my personal leave, uh, perhaps you're okay. But typically within, like you say, the employer's policies, there will be the right to request a medical certificate. What I see a lot of the time is that the medical certificate will just say the employee is unfit for work. So I suppose there's no strict requirement to, but what you will inevitably get to is a point where the employer is requesting more information to try and understand why you're off work so much. Or I guess that medical certificate gives, even though it's perhaps um, nondescript, it gives a sense of validation because it's come from a GP or somebody that's a third party rather than you just... Yeah, that's right. You know, not disclosing. Mm. Makes sense. And and mental health in the workplace, it it brings up lots of different questions for people. It would be good to have that because we've still got a lot of questions we didn't get to today. I think it would be good to put that on the agenda for next season for us to come back and hang out in your office, Maddie. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. We are sitting um, in the, what I well, I sort of shorten it to ABLA, the Australian Business Lawyers and Advisors office today, which is really cool. It's bringing in the good vibes um, for the topic. And 
oh, I am bummed that we couldn't get to some of these other good questions, but I do know that we see in that Facebook group people answering each other's and maybe sharing their experiences. So if we haven't answered yours, um, you might still be able to find a, a bit of a uh, insight from the brain trust there and we'll try and get to them next time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Maddie. And can I just get, how do people find you if they want to kind of connect with you further? Yeah, absolutely. I suppose the best place to find me is LinkedIn. Um, Just search my name and I should be there, Australian Business Lawyers and Advisors. So look up Madeline Teedman. In the show notes, you'll find the spelling of her name as well. So you can search her. We have loved chatting with you today. It's been so good. Hey, Yeah, it's been awesome. There's so many rabbit holes. I felt like we kept having to look at each other and go, okay, we've got to get off this topic and we've got to move on to the next one because you really could take any of these and do a whole episode. Um, so thank you so much. And just be warned, we might ask you back another time, we, you know, especially in this space because it is just constantly changing and to our point earlier is really hard to keep up. It is. Thanks so much for having me, girls, and I would be happy to come back. Great. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would love if you could give us a rating and review. If you enjoy the podcast, we'd love hearing your feedback and jump on Instagram and the Facebook community. And Shell, can I say, I usually don't interrupt, but a five-star rating, Yeah, please. please. (laughs) Five-star, we love five-star because actually, and subscribing helps us to get the podcast out there to more people. So that's why we ask you to do it. And you can find us on Instagram too. Shell Johns and M, how do I find you on Insta? I'm Emily RJ Bowen. Nice. Thanks for hanging out. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Money, property, careers, health, small business. We love learning how to do all of these well so we can live our best life. That's why we've made podcasts focus on a variety of topics. Check out My Millennial Money, My Millennial Money Express, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, Gen Z Money, and You To Me, You To You, You To Us, which is just about sexual and reproductive health. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change. 